Acts chapter number 8 tonight, and this is a very familiar passage of Scripture, and I'll go ahead and tell you, I hope this don't make you sort of check out of the message, but I'm probably not going to tell you anything that is uh, something you don't know already, but I do hope that I can be a blessing and encouragement to you tonight. I believe this is the mind of God for us this evening. God used this to speak to my heart uh, in some things, and, and aren't you glad the Lord speaks to us, deals with us? Uh, I tell you, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I'm not that I'm glad that my relationship with God is not just looking up into the heavens and hoping somebody's there. Uh, I'm glad my relationship with the Lord is not uh, going and praying to some idol that I know is not living. Uh, I'm glad that my relationship to the Lord is not going and talking to a priest and uh, hoping that they can get a hold of God. Uh, I'm thankful that my relationship with the Lord is a real relationship, an intimate relationship, and that God deals with us where we're at, what we're going through in our life. Acts chapter number 8. Let's begin reading in verse number 26. Acts chapter 8, verse number 26. The Bible says, And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem, unto Gaza, which is desert. And he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure, and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah, that's Isaiah, the prophet. Uh, then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Esaias and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. The place of the scripture which he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb before uh, his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth? And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized. Now, if you've got an NIV Bible, you're just going to have to listen to this next verse because it's not it's not in an NIV Bible. Uh, but uh, your King James Bible says in verse 37, And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I think that's a pretty important verse, don't you? But if you've got an NIV, you can sort of pick up reading verse 38 with us. It says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for letting us be here. What a blessing it is to get to be in your house. Lord, thank you for these faithful people that have come out on this Wednesday night. Lord, not because they love me, although I'm sure that they do, and not even because they love our church, although undoubtedly they do, but they're here because they love you and they love your word, Lord, and they need to hear from you. And so I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. I pray that you'd make me just a vessel that you might, uh, through your Holy Spirit, speak to hearts and uh, that Christ would be magnified. He's, he's deserving of it, Lord. He's worthy of all the glory and praise. And so we ask it in his name, in Christ's name, Amen. You know, this is one of a handful of desert scenes in the Word of God. And uh, I've always been fascinated by patterns in the Bible. Uh, because if there's a pattern, God's laying an emphasis on whatever it is that He is emphasizing or showing in that pattern. 
For instance, there are lots of scenes of things that happen uh, in the dark of night throughout the Word of God. Well, uh, this is one of a handful of desert scenes in the Bible. And really, if I'm being honest, I guess I'm preaching the last part in what should be a series. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. We might uh, we might turn this thing around, turn it into a series or something at some point. Because when you study through the Bible, you'll find different lessons and examples of what to do in a desert. Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, here we are in East Tennessee. We're under no risk of being in a desert. But I'd remind you that some of the physical characteristics and qualities of being in a desert have a spiritual application in our life. For instance, a desert is a dry place. It's a place where things don't grow. It's a place where it's tough to find sustenance. It's difficult. The very nature of it is such that there's not much drinkable water there. And so it is an unpleasant place to be. And I would say this, you're going to go through seasons in your Christian life that are dry seasons. I wish I could tell you that every day you're going to wake up enjoying being a Christian. But uh, the truth is, there's going to be times and often even seasons in your life where you're going to struggle in your Christian walk. It's going to be a dry season where you know that God's there, you know that He's real in your life, but you're just struggling to get in a, 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 a communion, a fellowship with Him like you normally have. Times when you pray and, and you know by faith that God hears, but you're struggling to really uh, pray in the Spirit of God. Times when you study your Bible and you know it's true, you know it's the inspired Word of God, but you're struggling to hear His voice. Times when you're trying to serve Him, but it seems like things just ain't happening. Uh, there's going to be seasons in your life that are dry spells. I wish it wasn't true, but I'm sorry it is. And we need to know how to act in those seasons, in those periods of time. So a desert is a dry place. Not only that, a desert is a deserted place. It's in the name, a desert, a deserted place where often you won't find very many fellow travelers. Now let me say, man, I'm thankful for the local church. There's no excuse for any of us to be without a fellowship of God's people. We've got a great church here and, and there's a lot of great churches in this world where God's doing a work. And, and the first thing that happens when a person gets born again is God puts them in a New Testament church. You say, well now preacher, there could be somebody that's uh, out in, you know, the darkest of, of the Amazonian, uh, you know, jungle. There could be somebody that's out in the waste howling wilderness in, in, uh, some place like, you know, the deserts of Australia. What about those people? That's why the Bible says where two or three are gathered. If somebody gets born again and don't have a church to go to, they ought to go out and win a couple people to Christ and start praying for a pastor. And they'll have a group of believers that they can fellowship with. And God's done it many times in the past. Never the will of God for God's people to be without a local church. Uh, ever since Calvary, ever since Pentecost, it's been the will of God that every New Testament believer be a part of a local body of believers. But oftentimes in your Christian experience, you'll go through times that you may be surrounded by God's people, but you'll feel lonely in your experiences. Times when you feel as though other people don't understand. Times when you'll feel as though they may be in their fellowship or missing something about what you are experiencing. And at times when sometimes it's a bitter pill to be around their joy and their, and their, you know, uh, their, their uh, vividness of, of, of delight and pleasantness and zeal and fervor for life because you're just struggling. You just feel lonely in the midst of what you're going through. I'm glad the Lord never leaves us nor forsakes us. But the truth is, sometimes even with the presence of God, even with the people of God, there'll be times that we feel lonely. We feel deserted. We feel like no one understands. And then not only that, but a desert is a disorienting place. It's a place that's difficult to navigate. That's one of the real great perils of a desert is when you get in the middle of it and look around, everything just looks the same. You don't know if you're headed the right direction. You don't know if you're walking in circles. You don't know if you're doubling back. 
you struggle to have a, a real uh, handle on your surroundings, understanding which direction to go and what to do. And I'll tell you, there's going to be times in your Christian life that you're going to struggle to know what direction to go. Now, I don't mean you'll wonder whether it's right to do right, because it's always right to do right. I don't mean you'll wonder whether the Bible's the Word of God or whether we ought to pray and trust the Lord. But I'm saying in the decisions you're making in your life, there'll be times you'll struggle to understand what God's doing, and you'll struggle to know which direction to go in things. So a desert in many ways has some similarities to our experiences in seasons of our Christian life. And when you go through the Bible, you learn things in the way that God's people have handled desert experiences. For instance, you can look at Moses and he's an example of waiting in the desert. For those first 40 years after he left Egypt, he waited and he served and he labored where God had planted him and just waited for God to bring to realization the plan that God had already disclosed for his life. Man, waiting is tough. Waiting in the desert is tougher, but Moses shows us how. Then he shows us about working in the desert. That first 40 years in the desert was all waiting, but the last 40 years, man, it was all work. He was leading God's people through. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, and this is true, if you uh, if you do the math on it, if you look at uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of two and a half million Israelites that came out of Egypt, and you just look at a sort of demographic proportion of those that would have been 20 years old or older that had to die before they went into the promised land, and then you look at that 40 years. You know what Moses did more than anything? Funerals. Day in, day out, they buried people. Day in and day out. And it's hard work. Uh, so much so, the burden of the people upon him that his father-in-law came to him and said, you're going to waste away if you don't get some help. And of course, that's where uh, the 70 elders of Israel were delegated uh, their responsibilities. But Moses is an example of working in the desert. When you're working in those dry seasons, man, you've got to have people that help you. You've got to have people that encourage you. And you've got to keep your eyes on the Lord or you'll grow discouraged and waste away. Paul's an example of learning in the desert. He spends three years uh, alone with the Lord in the desert learning the great mysteries of the dispensation of grace and God revealing and unveiling some things to him. And You say, preacher, we don't know much about that time in the desert. No, we don't, but we know what we need to, which is that if we're going to learn, we've got to get alone with God. If we're going to learn from the Lord, we've got, to, we've got to let God teach us. We've got to prioritize the Word of God and the truth of God above all other things. Why did He have to be in the desert so He didn't hear nobody's voice but God's? And oftentimes in our life, we've got to push out those voices to hear the voice of God. And then the Lord Jesus gave an example of praying in the desert. Uh, on several occasions, he would go away alone in the wilderness to pray. And uh, we see that in his life. We see the blessing of praying. We see the burden of praying. We see the battle that comes with praying. When he had been in the wilderness fasting for 40 days and the devil comes along uh, to try to tempt him. And so we have a great example of praying in the desert. Let me say, we ought to, we ought to use those times, those desert seasons in our life, we ought to use it as a praying time. When we feel like, well, I don't know what else I can do. I wish I could change my circumstances. I wish I could fix this. I wish I could make it better. You know what that's a good time to do? It's a good time to pray. Just spend time with God, asking for the will of God, learning the mind of Christ, spending time communing with the Lord. Here in Acts chapter number 8, we read about a man by the name of Philip. And Philip to us is an example of witnessing in the desert. When you're going through these seasons in life, how do we be an effective witness? How do we make sure they are not wasted seasons in our life? I want you to notice seven things very quick. I know I just scared you when I said that, but I don't, I don't have no sub points. I've got seven things I'm going to say and then I'll hush uh, that we learn from this text 
uh, in the desert in Philip's experience. Notice them with me now. Look at verse number 26. The Bible says, The angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south, unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem, unto Gaza, which is desert. Now, this verse is interesting, just on the face of it, that God would lead him down to a desert place. But it's really interesting if you consider the context of the rest of chapter 8. Tom won't permit us to read it, but what you'll read about is a great revival that was taking place amongst the Samaritans. Uh, Philip had gone up there and began preaching the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. Folks started getting born again. Folks started getting saved. I'm talking about bondage. Chains started to break in people's lives. Communities started to transform. So much so that they wanted him to come. They, they sent people to go up there and check out what was going on in Samaria. See, the Jews believed God wouldn't have no dealings with the Samaritans because the Samaritans were unclean in their sight. And so they start thinking, man, what is going on up in Samaria? They send Peter and James and John to go up there and check it out. And they say, sure enough, there is a revival taking place in Samaria. God is doing a great, wonderful work in that place. And when we consider that, it's all the more striking what verse 26 says. Here's Philip being used in a meaningful way. Lives being changed. The ministry growing. Fruitful season in his life. And God calls him away from all of that and sends him down to a desert place. The first lesson when we read this text is about strange paths in our life. You know, there's going to be times in your life you're not going to understand what God's doing. It made no sense, humanly speaking or ministerially speaking, what Philip did in our text. Anybody would have advised him if Philip had called up his evangelist friends and said, I- I've been called about a meeting way down here in the desert. I don't even know who's going to show up. I don't know if there's people down there to preach to, but I've been called by God to go down to this place. And they would have said, well, what do you got going on, Brother Philip? And he'd say, well, to be honest, things are going good up here in Samaria, man. God's moving, God's stirring, God's working. They would have said, well, why don't you just call whoever it is called you down in the desert and tell them you'll call them next year for a better time. But instead, he's obedient to the Lord. And God uses that in a mighty way. Let me tell you, sometimes God will call us in strange paths in our life. Places we would not have chosen for ourselves. Circumstances that we never prayed for and never asked for. But God leads us in those directions because he has a providential purpose and he's going to get glory from it. If what God does in your life always has to make sense to you, then God is not God in your life. You are God in your life. You have set boundaries and said, God, I will not trust you with things I do not understand. What gives us the right to do that? Well, the truth is nothing does. And the fact is of Christianity, a great many times God will lead us in paths that we do not understand. You could probably look back and you know, there's sort of two ways this can happen, right? Sometimes God leads us down a path that we wouldn't take otherwise. That's That's the best way. But if you're like me, most of the time, God has had to kick you down that path that you otherwise would never have gone down. And how many times could we give testimonies about God forcing us in a direction, taking us down a path that he had to hog tie us and drag us and cart us that way that afterwards we could lift our hand in praise and say, boy, isn't God good? He knew what I needed in that time. And yet then on occasions where God seeks to lead us willfully, uh, volitionally down those paths, we balk at it and we say, well, Lord, I don't understand it, so I don't want to follow you. There's a great many times you're going to be called 
to go down strange paths in your life. And what I mean by that is not strange regarding Scripture. I don't mean strange in the sense of against the Word of God or against the clear truth of Christianity. But I mean strange in the sense of not making sense humanly speaking. Not being something that can be easily reconciled with the world's perspective and values. But how we limit God when we refuse to follow Him in paths that others were unwilling to trod. Man, I tell you, there's one fella in heaven, and probably a lot more than just one, but there's shown up one in heaven that's glad that Philip went down a strange path because it made all the difference in his life. Look down at verse 27. And I've always thought this was funny. There are certain scriptures that strike me as being humorous, and this is one of them. The Bible says, He arose and went, and behold... Now. That word behold is a big word there. Uh, And I don't mean it in the sense of studying some Greek and what some context. I, I just say think about it in the context. He's followed God. He's left this revival. He's gone down to a place where there should be nobody. Lo and behold, there is a man. A man of Ethiopia and eunuch of great authority. He ain't just somebody, man. He's somebody with great authority. And authority uh, typically equals influence. Authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure. By the way, the chance that the gospel would have gone in the direction of Ethiopia was very, very unlikely. And it says he had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning, sitting in his chariot, read Esaias the prophet. When we read this passage, we learn something about uh, strange paths, but then we learn something about divine appointment. He comes down this path and I, I just, and I've had these moments in my life where I, I felt ashamed, chagrined, bemused that I ever doubted that God knew what he was doing in the first place. And you can imagine as Philip is walking along down through the desert and thinking all the things that we think, what's God doing? What's God thinking? All them people up there dying and going to hell in Samaria and, and, and God moving amongst them and He dragged me down here and now I'm walking through this desert. This don't make a lick of sense to me and then all of a sudden He hears the, the clack of those chariot wheels. And He looks up and in a place where there should be no one, there's a man of great authority, meaning great influence, who is reading the Bible. A man who has no business having a Bible. And what I mean by that is is in his culture, in his society, uh, they were not Bible-believing people. They were not people that knew the God of Israel and knew uh, those things. But here he is. He's been to Jerusalem to worship, so he has some concept of the God of Israel. And now he's sitting there with Isaiah 53 laying open on his lap wondering, who's this talking about I'd say this, man, and I've said it about my life. You've probably said it about yours. You ever just step back and said, boy, God knows what He's doing. Boy, I, I couldn't have done that, but God did that. And it tells me this, that our life is, and, and, I, and I, I don't mean this word irreverently, but littered with divine appointments. God knows what He's doing. He doesn't lead us in a direction just because He is amused at us sort of wandering around like an ant in one of those ant hills. I mean, one of those ant farms. God leads us in distinct. The Bible says the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. He sets us in the paths, in the ways that He desires for us to go. And the only thing that can hamstring that process is our disobedience to Him. But if we'll obey Him, what we'll find is that our life is fixed with divine appointments day in and day out. A great many of them we let pass by us and we never keep it. We may be present, we may be in the same room as that person, 
but because we are not conscious of the fact that God is ordering our steps and that God is opening doors and that we're not here just to buy a nicer car, buy a bigger house, buy better clothes. We're here for the work of God. We let those moments pass by. There have been times in my life where it was so uh, so apparent like it is in this passage that it makes me wonder how many times that if I had paid just a, a modicum more, more attention, I would have seen that there was an appointment waiting on me. God was opening a door before me if I had just been willing and if I had just been uh, vigilant to walk through it. You couldn't ask for a better situation. But you see, God is not, and I, and I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want you to get the wrong impression with this. I, I'm not saying that God's motivation in our life is for you to succeed in what you want to do. But God is absolutely interested in us succeeding in what He wants us to do. God is not setting us up for failure. God is setting us up for success. It may not be in the pursuits that we want or that we covet or that we desire. But in this matter, being used of God to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now that's not suggest everybody you witness to you're going to win. In fact, if my Bible's correct and I know it is, there's going to be more people that turn you away than there will be that hear and that listen. But we need to understand that as God orders our steps, He's not doing that with no sense or nonsense. He's doing it with providence. And so we learn something about divine appointments. God opens these doors. God prepares paths. But only through our obedience uh, can those divine appointments be met and be realized. Then look at verse 29 with me. The Bible says, Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. Again, another humorous moment. Because for one, and we don't know how fast this chariot was was traveling. It says in verse 30, Philip ran thither to him. So evidently it wasn't at a walking pace. He had to run or speed up to get there. And you can imagine that moment. You've probably had these times in your life. Have you ever been about to witness to someone and then all of the sudden struck with an outsized sense of the absurdity of what you do? What I mean by that is this, that moment where your flesh says, are you really about to ask this total stranger if they're going to heaven when they die? You can imagine Philip must have sensed that. I mean, he's running up to this chariot, getting ready to talk to this man that he's never met before, which, by the way, I think it is very easy to consider that probably this man was traveling with an envoy with other people. He's about to go disrupt and, and interrupt their travel to talk to this man who, by the way, he does not know is sitting there reading Isaiah 53. He just knows here comes the chariot. You ought to chase it down. But here's what he had to do. He had to immediately obey. This passage teaches us about the importance of immediate, unwavering, unhesitating obedience to the Spirit of God. You know, we understand that the Holy Spirit of God is God, right? He is the third person of the Trinity, and that's not related to rank, but it's related to roles within the Trinity, meaning that He is just as much God as God the Father, as God the Son. And it would not have been inappropriate for the Holy Ghost to have said here, then God said unto Philip. But the Holy Ghost is very careful to let us know that it was Him. The Spirit said unto Philip, go near and join thyself to this chariot. You know why? I think he is denoting who the agent of administering and disclosing the prompting, the will of God in our life is in this dispensation of grace. Certainly he uses the truth, the word of God to do so. It's his sword, uh, but he takes it and applies it in our life. And he's reminding us that it is uh, no less than God himself that is administering that command in our life, telling us to go and to do his bidding. And it requires immediate obedience. Uh, slow obedience. I teach my kids this. You probably taught your kids this, that uh, that slow obedience is the same as disobedience. 
Well, you want a text for that? Read the book of Jonah. He eventually went to Nineveh, right? All it took was a storm and a whale. <laughs> uh, slow obedience is disobedience. God is pleased with immediate obedience. And you know, in this situation, it would have done Philip no good. And here's why I know this, because I have been this person. It would have done Philip no good to decide the next day that he would be willing to talk to the chariot. You know why? Because that chariot was going to be long gone. How many times have we done it? Stood there at the gas station and watched that car pull away. Stood there at the grocery store and watched that person walk off and that divine appointment slip away because we were not immediately obedient in our life. And by the way, let me say this, that as we yield to the direct leadership of God in those strange paths, it is all the more imperative that we not try to intuit or guess what God expects of us, but instead to obey His Spirit directly and immediately as He leads us. We're already in a place where... <laughs> How do I say this right? Philip was in a place where there wasn't nothing but the will of God. If he didn't follow God in his leading, he was going to miss that opportunity. He couldn't follow road signs. He's out in the middle of a desert. And often in these dry seasons, these desert seasons of our life, it's always imperative we obey the Lord, but it's all the more imperative because we're bewildered and lost on our own in the first place. Very often, how we like, I've used this analogy before, the way we want to live our Christian life is like a quarterback calling plays from the huddle and not listening to what the coach is saying. Uh, we like to try to intuit what God would expect of us instead of listening to Him as He leads us because it is easier to imagine what God would, would want than it is to live clean and close enough to hear His voice. We need immediate obedience in our life. And the only way that will happen is with a surrendered life. Look at verse 30 with me. We see another lesson we learned. It says, And Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Aspeus and said, Understandest thou what thou readest? That's a reasonable question. By the way, he's not unkind. He's not, he's not rude. Uh, but he just simply asked, Do you understand? What, does that make sense to you what you're reading? And he said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him. You know what we learn about in this passage? We learn about the present need in people's lives. There's people that are looking, searching. Listen, I've grown up here in East Tennessee. I, if we're not if we're not the buckle of the Bible belt, we're the first hole over. Amen. I, and and growing up in this part, you're told your whole life, well everybody already knows the gospel. That's not true. For one thing, people are moving here at lightning pace. Uh, most of them from very godless areas of our country. Uh, but also beyond that, there's a great many people that grow up with the trappings of Bible Christianity that never understand the substance of it. I was talking the other day to uh, Dan, to uh, Carolyn and, and Sam's uh, son-in-law, and of course they're from Canada, pray for them. Um, and, uh, they, uh, and we were talking about witnessing. And he said, it's strange to me to be in a culture of society down here where everyone you talk to knows about Christianity. They all say that they're Christians. They all say that they're saved. And I told him, I said, you know, that's absolutely a, a difficulty that has to be overcome when you're witnessing to people down here. But I said, what I've found is this, when you're witnessing to people, all it means is you have to go one step further. When you talk to somebody and say, are you saved? Listen, if you say that in the tri-state area, you're going to get the uniformly same answer by anyone except some angry, godless Marxist. The rest of them are all going to say the same thing. Yeah, I'm saved. And then very often I'll say, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? What does being saved mean to you? Or I'll say things like, well, tell me how that happened in your life. Tell me what happened to you. Or I'll say, well, who saved you or how did you get saved? Very often that's all it takes. 
And then immediately the entire lie unravels that they were counting on. They'll say things like, well, I had a granddaddy that was a deacon, or well, I was baptized when I was young, or whatever their insert generic cultural Christianity answer might be. And you can then begin to deal with them about their present need. Here's the truth that the devil doesn't want you to know. People are looking for hope and help. People need Christ and they know something's missing in their life. We need to recognize this in people's lives. We need to like Philip. He was not rude or unkind. He just said, do you understand what you're reading? What does this mean to you, Philip? You're reading these words on a page. Who do you think they're about? What do they mean? He answered very, very beautifully. How can I accept some man should guide me? The present need is people need folks to guide them into a clear understanding of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. So we learn about the present need here. And then look at verse 32. And we'll, we'll read down to verse 35. It's a big chunk uh, of scripture here, but really I want to focus on verse 35. The Bible says the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. And who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Because there's a lot of people that have the Bible, that know the Bible, that don't understand the Bible. He said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? I love this. Then, uh, then Philip opened his mouth, verse 35, and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. You know what we learn here? We learn about being prepared. Being prepared. Imagine if Philip had had no good answer to that question. What if he had had to say, I don't know. I don't know who he's talking about. The whole reason he could begin, and by the way, it doesn't say he ended at that same Scripture. He began at that same Scripture. And then he began to preach unto him Jesus. In other words, he started there and he said, well, I'll tell you exactly who it's about. Uh, Mr. Eunuch, that is not about, uh, you know, Israel as a nation. Uh, that is, is not about, uh, some sort of, uh, you know, faux Messiah that has come before in some, that is about Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Savior of men. He's the man that John said was the Lamb of God, which should take away the sin of the world. And he began to preach unto him Jesus. How did he do that? Well, because he knew his scripture. I want to be very clear with what I'm about to say. You don't have to be a theologian to be a soul winner. In fact, it might hurt you to be a theologian if you're going to be a soul winner. I know a great many that are great at arguing and terrible at witnessing. Uh, but you do need to understand clearly what the gospel is. And you need to be able to show people from the Bible what it says about being saved. Now, there's a great many tools that we have. You know, we do our track day challenge. That's a wonderful thing to have. I feel like sometimes, and I'm an advocate of gospel tracks. We spend money on them and, and, and I believe in them. I've spent hours and hours designing them. I think they're a valuable, very important tool. Uh, but we need to be careful lest it just sort of become a marketing tool in their mind. We need to always be personal and conversational when we're witnessing to people. And don't ever forget, you're talking to somebody that needs Christ when you witness to them. So we need to be prepared, which by the way, involves more than just a scriptural understanding. It involves spiritual leadership. It, it involves letting the Spirit of God lead us in our life, being submitted to His guidance. But I'm saying this, when you're walking strange paths in your life, and in many ways, every step a Christian takes is strange to them because it's not ordered by us, it's ordered by the Lord. We need to live to be instant, in season, out of season, constant ready, prayed up and ready to share the gospel with people. Look what it says in verse 36. He goes on, the Bible says, as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? This isn't my message, but I, I can't pass this up. 
uh, without without talking about it. In an NIV Bible, it, it completely removes verse 37. Now listen to how it reads if you don't have verse 37 in it. As they went on their way, they came under a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. How in the world does that not weaken the clear teaching of Scripture about believers' baptism? How? Uh, how is that an unimportant verse? Of course it's an important verse. In fact, it is vital to the very context of the passage of what transpires there. So this lie that people tell you, well, they just take out the these and nows, but they don't change anything materially, that is a lie. That is not true. Uh, and that's not just true uh, concerning the, uh, the NIV, but all the rest of them as well. Uh, but that's just a very clear, vivid example of it. So no, instead, verse 37 says, after he asked that question, that Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still and they went down both into the water, uh, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized And We have here a lesson about seizing opportunities before us. He didn't put him off. He said, you ready? And he said, all right, let's go ahead and do it. Now, uh, uh, let's be abundantly clear. He's talking about an adult. He's talking about a man that it's abundantly clear that he has been uh, reading and searching for God. And we don't know the content of the message that Philip preached, but we can be sure that it included a clear presentation of the gospel. In other words, we're not talking about walking someone through a prayer that doesn't have a clear understanding. We're not talking about twisting the, the mind or, or the willingness to comply of a child to try to get some kind of false profession. Nowhere is that advocated in the Bible. But nor is it advocated that we put barbed wire around the altar and try to make it hard for folks to get saved. Uh, this isn't a problem in our church, but I know a lot of good brothers that I think sincerely love the Lord that pastor churches, and they think that they can get that they can make their profession stronger by making the gospel harder, and that's not true. The gospel is something that is difficult to the flesh, but it is abundantly simple and clear and easy to understand. And we should not allow anyone to be drawn away from the simplicity that is in Christ by muddling it with false doctrine. Instead, we ought to be willing to seize the opportunity. Uh, I say this all the time. You've heard me say it. Uh, that chances are if you won't deal with God here, now, in this place, you won't do it when you're sitting in your lazy boy watching Bonanza. This is the moment. This is the time. And we need to, in our witnessing to people, in speaking to them, we need to be mindful to seize those opportunities. You can't make people get saved. No one's advocating that you try to force people to get saved. But I am saying when somebody's ready to get saved, don't try to talk them out of getting saved. Just go ahead and seize the opportunity. And then look at verse 39. I'll read this and we'll be done. It says, When they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, but the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through, he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. There's a lot we could say about this, but I'm going to say one simple thing. We learn a lesson about trusting God. I don't know about you, but I would imagine it would have been hard for Philip to our knowledge, he never saw that eunuch again in his life. He wins him to Christ and immediately is removed from his life. Surely, if this, by the way, there could have been no record of this had Philip not shared the record and testimony of this because even though, of course, the Spirit 
of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. When God could, He used human means of record and of communicating truth uh, to lay down the record of the truth of God's Word, of God-inspired, God-breathed truth, meaning this, that the record of John is the things that John was pinning down. The record of Mark, for instance, in the Gospel of Mark very likely came from Peter and their relationship. And the very fact that we have this uh, event that took place in the desert tells you that one or two people must have been talking about it for many years to come. Philip or the eunuch. And probably they both were. Probably Philip spent many long years wondering whatever happened to that man. If it had been uh, the the eunuch that shared this, there would have probably been much more. But the narrative ends with Philip being spirited away. Why is that? This is probably Philip's testimony of what took place on that day. And he undoubtedly, it made an indelible impression upon him what God had done in that desert. And he spent the rest of his life having to trust God to take the work that had begun through his obedience and to water it and to grow it and to develop it to be under the glory of God. Man, I wish I could tell you that everybody you witness to, you'll get to watch them get saved, get baptized, get in church, go on and serve the Lord for many years. And there will be some, praise God. But the majority of the people that you win to Christ, they will come into your life and out of your life. That doesn't mean we don't quit praying. That doesn't mean we quit praying for him. Doesn't mean we quit caring about them. Philip never quit caring. It's evident uh, for this man, but it does mean we have to learn to trust God. With, by the way, not just those we win to Christ, but those we're seeking to win to Christ, those who know Christ, but we're asking God to work in their life. We need to be persistent and dedicated in praying for them. But we also have to learn to trust God that God loves them more than we do and that God will continue to work in their life. And we can do our part by praying for them and seeking for the glory of God in their life and whatever they're experiencing. So in other words, we learn these, these truths as we study through this desert experience. And what could we summarize them as? We need to walk with God. We need to go wherever He leads us. We need to obey whenever He, he prompts us. We need to be ready to serve God in whatever strange paths we find ourselves in. And as we have done that, we need to commit the fruit of that unto the Lord, knowing that God will bring glory out of it. Let's bow our heads tonight. God may have spoken to your heart about something. The musician's going to come. Miss Connie's going to play for us. But you know, you may find yourself at this season of your life in some strange paths. You may find yourself in some uncomfortable situations. You may be facing and experiencing some things that you didn't pray for. And if you could, you'd pray it away. But here you are. God's brought you to this place. You ought to commit in your heart uh, and in your soul to, to trust God, to commit those seasons to the Lord and to allow Him to use them for His glory. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Christ's name.